All right, sorry, a little late. Oh, I was saying hi to everybody, and I was getting my notes together, and uh, it was fun saying hi to everybody, just put it that way. <laughs> so do me a favor and uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> I can't imagine getting at a a place better for Christmas, the Christmas season, than 1 Corinthians 15. I always say to my friend Brad back there who has a birthday today, did you guys know he has a birthday today? I mean, he didn't tell anybody at all, but uh, I'm kidding him. I'm kidding him. I always say to my friend Brad back there, I think there's four chapters of the Bible, that, uh, the New Testament, that are sort of the pillars of the New Testament. Here's what I think they are, for me at least. And I think if you know these four chapters of the Bible, it's sort of, of the New Testament, I think it sort of unlocks much of the New Testament for itself. And here are the four uh, chapters. I think Romans 8 is one of them. I think that's certainly one of the four pillars of the New Testament, for me. I think Philippians 2 is one of those uh, four pillars of the New Testament. I think 2 Corinthians 5 should be included in there for me. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, and that's where we uh, find ourselves today. And it's really a fascinating piece of Scripture Because it's dealing with things that the Corinthian church was dealing with, this Grecian church, this church of Greece, or in Greece, that sort of always happens now. (laughs) Like, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. I mean... I don't know if we use that phrase anymore, although you do hear it a lot in the public discourse. But that's sort of people's, in the world's, philosophy of life. And I've been a part of that culture, so I know. (laughs) Eat, drink, and be merry. Because why would we want to be eat, or why would we want to participate in that sort of philosophy of life? Well, you see, back in Greece... They had these certain thinkers. You know that the Grecians liked to think and liked to debate and liked to discuss. And that was one of the great things they loved to do. And they had these Epicurean people who basically thought the body was a prison. That once you died, I mean, that was pretty much it. And so if you died and that was pretty much it, instead of being totally excessive, don't be totally excessive, the Epicureans would say, so that you didn't get unhealthy because, you, you know, I mean, once you die, that's it. But in the meantime, while you're here, what matters is pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry. And so your whole goal in life would be to be comfortable, have the nicest home or abode, convenience, nicest car, all the technological things that we have, it sort of plays out. And, 
anything that's comfortable is good, and anything that's pleasurable is really good. And not that God is against pleasure. He certainly isn't that, but that's not the philosophy of life. And so Paul here is going to address this church, Corinth, that's actually written a letter to Paul because he was the one who was instrumental in starting the church. He had been in Corinth for 18 months. He had poured out his blood, sweat, and tears to establish this church, and now he's moved on somewhere. And the Corinthians have sent a letter, or maybe even a couple letters, saying that there's some things wrong in the church, and that they wanted to know about them. And, hey, Paul, could you give me some advice? And that's what we're currently reading, a letter of advice back to the Corinthian church that's inspired by God. And we've been through it. There have been so many things that Paul here has addressed. And for the last three weeks, or maybe, I can't remember, maybe it's even been a month, we've been talking about spiritual gifts. We've been talking about spiritual gifts, and what's fascinating about spiritual gifts, Paul sort of lays out a, a, a lot of them in chapter 12, and he lays out the two, or at least one controversial one in chapter 14, the speaking in tongues, and he talks about prophecy in 14, but what's in between, what's, what's sandwiched in between there is that chapter that you think is about marital love, and it's not that at all. It can be marital love, but it is Paul talking about being loving in the church, that if you could speak in a certain tongue but have not love. You're just a, a clashing symbol, one that's just banging in people's ears. They can hear the music, but ugh, it's nothing to them. you got to have love. And we said, didn't we, that l- real love is given to us. It's poured out in our hearts by the Lord himself through the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 5. And how do we get this love? Well, girls, ladies who are on the women's retreat, you learned a lot about that, how to be a vessel ready to receive all that the Lord has for you. You're just a vessel receiving from the Lord. And what do you do? You just ask for it. You ask for supernatural love, the love of God. Because when you walk through what the love of God is, wow, that is a high standard, and yet that's grace. God gives us the grace to love people in that way. Well, then we get, as we close out spiritual gifts, we come to this. Let me just read uh, to verse 11, and then uh, we'll uh, unpack it a little bit. Here's the word of the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brothers or brethren, sisters, family of God, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, uh, by which also you were saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brothers, brethren, at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles... 
Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of uh, due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we prayed, preach, and so you believed. Okay. So here's what I want to tackle first. The risen Christ and the importance of Christ's resurrection. And in order for Christ to have been resurrected, see, he had to come and be a man. In order for it to be efficacious, to take effect, to be of any value or worth, we'll find that out here as we continue on, he had to be a man. I mean, he's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And whose sins did he come to take away from? What terrible grammar. Whose sins did he come to take away? Men and women, not a dog or a goat or a cow. So in order to pay the penalty for our sins, he had to be a man, and that's Christmas. In order to be resurrected, which, by the way, is not reconstructed. I want you to write that in your notes. Some of us think that he's going to take what we were and just sort of piece us back together like Humpty Dumpty and that's how we're going to live in heaven and that's not what it says in here at all it says we're going to be resurrected that's different than reconstruction but in order for all of that to happen it had to be a human being a man that's why that's why Christmas is so important Yeah, go ahead. I don't care. Debate whether it's in December or April. Who cares? Just being honest. He had to have been born. And that's the whole point. And so here, Paul says, I might get in trouble for that who cares thing, huh? But anyway, that's why it's so important here. Because Paul is telling the church that's writing to ask. They must have written something like this. Hey, Paul, some people in our fellowship are sort of getting squirrely or wiggly on the resurrection. There's been this influence from the outside where people are saying there is no resurrection. Or they might be saying... There's not really a bodily resurrection, or maybe they're even saying, yeah, but the body that's in the ground is the same one you're going to live with in heaven. And that's sort of true, but sort of not true. And Paul then comes and gives us a detailed description, a detailed teaching on all of this. And see, at its core then... This chapter is about real, not fake, phony, Facebook, Instagram hope. This is about real hope. (laughs) Right? Because when you're standing at the gravesite, yeah, in here, great, lights, lights, ornaments, beautiful, pretty. Yeah, we believe, clap, sing. But when you're faced with death, in your life, in my life, 
See, that's where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. And this is the chapter of hope. It's like right at the heart of the whole gospel. Hope. Real hope. Paul says later, yeah, we grieve. Of course we grieve. Jesus grieved. But we don't grieve with no hope. We have hope. A living hope. And so that's this. He says, I declare to you the gospel. You know this. In the Greek, it's good news. He's saying that I've declared in the past to you the gospel, and I continue to declare the gospel, the good news, which I formerly, I preached to you. I was there for 18 months, which also you received. I want you to see that. You and I, we can't be passive with the gospel. You can't just keep coming to church 50 years, 40 years, 30 years, just taking it all in. There must be this receiving of the gift. If I was going to give you a gift and I held it out, it's totally a gift. Just come get my new iPhone. You can have it. We'll change out the SIM card. It doesn't become yours until you take it. You have to receive it. And so he preaches, but there has to be a receiving. To as many, John 1 says, as those who have received him. That's important for us. To those people, to those who have received him, to them he gives the right to become children of God, the Bible tells us. We and you, we must not just sit on our backsides in here hearing the gospel all the time. There must be this receiving into our hearts all the gift that he's given to us and count on it for our salvation. Is everybody clear on that? You must receive. I must receive. The Corinthians had to have received. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Wait a minute. There's a believing in vain? What's vain mean? Vain is sort of like nothingness. It can look attractive and beautiful on the outside, but when you really examine them, it's like a big old hubba-bubba-bubble. And you just, and there's nothing there. That's vanity. And you talk about it, like when people are so into themselves and their appearance, of course we need to look fine and bathe and all that sort of thing. But, you know, into your appearance, that's vanity because it's not going to last. And he says that there's a believing in vain. Oh, my. And what's a believing in vain? It's sort of like a works-based Christianity. Are you getting this? This thought that you must do things to appease the Lord. That's pagan thinking. That's not Christianity, and we all do it. Man, I've been to 40 Bible studies. I know he's going to answer my prayers now. Oh, man, you, and you, know, you, you might not say it, but you go, gosh, can you imagine how much money we gave this year? So great to be able to give that money. You know what? When we get in the prayer closet, I know he's going to answer my prayers. Come on, you say it. You think it. And there's this thinking that we have to do and be and, and measure up in order to be or to impact the Lord in your favor. And see, you're missing it. What we believe is in what Paul spells out the rest of the time. We believe in the grace of God, that God did everything for you. It's like he just sort of pushed all everything you need. He just pushed it towards you, and he said, just receive what I've already done. 
And when you surrender your life to Jesus' cross, his finished work at the cross and resurrection, what happens? It's no longer a workspace, I got to impact him so he'll bless me. You've already been blessed because he accomplished it at the cross. And now your whole life is just a response. See, that's grace. Grace is responding to what God has already accomplished. And when we believe in that way, it's not in vain. It's eternal. But if you believe, if I believe in a different way, it's vanity. It's just a popping bubble. For I delivered to you, listen to this, first of all. I want you to circle that. If he delivered it first as he uh, was teaching the Corinthian church, if it was first, I don't know about you, but even I can think of this through. It must have been important. Here's what he delivered to him first, or to them, sorry, Corinthians first. Here's what it was first. The first thing, when I sat down the first week to start teaching you at the Corinthian church, Paul says, these are the things I preached. And oh, by the way, let's us in here be solid on these things. Here's what I preached. Here's what I delivered to you. I preached that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by all these different people. You get this? The gospel is based on fact, real historical facts. But wait a minute, I missed something. I skipped it on purpose. I want you to see this. Paul says he didn't just pull this out of the air. These things that he delivered to the Corinthian church, the gospel, the good news, those things based on fact, he actually received them from Christ himself. And you can talk about that or read about that in Galatians. He apparently had a time in the desert where the Lord instructed him for a several-year period before he went out teaching and preaching and evangelizing. But he received this, that Christ died for our sins. See, it's not enough that Christ died. Listen to what I'm saying. It is that. But you know, crucifixion is not just... It wasn't the only... Jesus wasn't the only person that died via crucifixion. Do you understand this? This was the normal mode of capital punishment for Romans... Apparently, the Persians invented this horrific way to kill somebody, and the Romans perfected it, and they brought it out when they uh, were, you know, dominating the uh, Middle East or the Mediterranean area, and so many people died by crucifixion. You all get that, right? Not just Jesus. But Jesus is the only one who died for our sins. Are you getting that? And you and I need to know that. So you need to know, I need to know, that the Bible says we are all sinners. I remember when I first became a Christian, I attended a meeting of Christians at my college that I was attending. And we were walking home from the meeting, and 
uh, my roommate, who was always, you know, like Mr. Positive, you know, the guy on, uh, you know, when, you know, you've lost $500 and you wrecked into people and, you know, somebody, your dog died and, you know, you didn't have anything to eat that day, would say, man, isn't it a great day? You know, he was just one of those guys, right? And we're walking home from that meeting and you know what he says to us? You know, we're all basically good. And I scratched my head because I was a new Christian and I'm like, man, I think they just showed us some verses in that club, that, 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 that meeting that, no, not, we're not basically good. We're basically sinners who've missed the mark and our hearts are deceptively wicked. I mean, who could know our hearts? I mean, right, folks? Just think of some of the things that have gone around in that brain of ours. How would you like to project them up here on the screen and just let them do, you know, a stream of consciousness of your thoughts or my thoughts? No, I wouldn't want that. Because I'm a sinner saved by grace. I have been a sinner and God has entered my life and saved me. But see, we start that we are in sin and we can't save ourselves and we had no ability to pay for our sins. The wages of sin is death, and we had no ability to pay it because we weren't perfectly righteous, which was a requirement of the law. And so if Christ perfectly fulfilled the law, the Ten Commandments and all the things that came from that, what he, if he perfectly fulfilled that law and that the end of the law, do you know this? The end of the law, the penalty for the, uh, missing the mark of the law is death. So the only person who could save us is one who perfectly fulfilled the law and yet took on the law's penalty. Are you getting it? And so the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, pillar, (laughs) that up on the cross, something happened, a spiritual transaction And what happened was the sins, our sins, the sins of the world, our sins were imputed to Christ. That means put into his spiritual bank account. He never became a sinner. Just our sins were placed on him. Watch this. So that when we surrender our lives to Christ and give our lives over and count on his finished work at the cross and resurrection, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, then come what comes back to us into our spiritual bank account is his righteousness. So how in the world would we ever have any ability to do that and, and, and affect that transaction in any way? We, we couldn't. And that's the point. He died for our sins. He wiped the slate clean. He knew mercy. There's new mercies every morning. He doesn't count our sins against us, the Bible tells us. How about that one? Is that like, you know, the, the emoji, that, the mind-blowing emoji? Does that do that to you right there? It does to me too. Well, the whole point is, look at this. I deliver you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for your sins. He didn't just die. He died for your sins. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I don't think in our church, and I'm talking about at this time, not this church right here, at this time in the world, we don't have a sense of the gravity of our sin. Where we've been and what was coming against us 
See, because at the cross, God's righteous wrath and judgment was poured out on his son so that the penalty was paid. So he died for our sins. And he didn't just die for our sins. He died according to the scriptures. That's important for you to know that fact. This just wasn't something God pulled out of the air like, oh my gosh, I'm looking down, you know. Jesus is in trouble. We better figure out a plan here now at the end of his life. You catching that? It was according to the scriptures. You could go to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passages. He bore our sins. You know that. And Psalm 22 Just read Psalm 22, written 800 years before Christ, and you go, first line, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I I think I've heard that somewhere before. But that was 800 years before Jesus was on the cross or so. Jesus not only was talking about that spiritual transaction that was taking place, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The sins of the world imputed and righteous wrath being poured out. He wasn't only just saying that when he said that on the cross. What he was announcing to everyone is, you know that uh, uh, messianic psalm in Psalm 22? My God, my God, thou hast forsaken me. Do you know that? I'm the one it was speaking of. And the people all around would have gone, Oh, my. And that's in there, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52. And, and that he rose again. That's in the scriptures in Hosea 6.2. And in one of your favorite Bible stories, it's right there. I mean, this guy gets into the belly of a whale, and you all know his name, and then he's barfed out on a beach. And it's after three days. And, you know, some people in the New Testament asked Jesus, I want a sign, man, like when I was a little kid and asked the things to fall off my shelf. I want a sign. People come to us. They say, well, I need something from the Lord. And the answer is not <laughs> your immediate situation. Jesus said, the sign I give is Jonah in the belly of the whale. I'm that one. I came back. I, I was resurrected out of certain death, you know. So it's everywhere in the scriptures, and that's important for you. Because you know why, to me, it's so important? Don't check out right here. You know why it's so important it says according to the scriptures? <laughs> because God thinks you're, you matter. And he did everything from the beginning of what we consider time. He did everything so that you could come back into the family of God and live with him forever. Do you see how important you are to him? How much you matter? See, when I read according to the scriptures, I go, wow, do we matter. He planned it all out. And then he says, and that he was seen by Cephas, or Peter. Wouldn't that be interesting? Who was really stung and hurting and feeling really poor at the end of Jesus' life as he... Basically, Peter denies Jesus on the night in which he, or what we would consider he needed him the most. When Jesus was caught by the enemy and paraded to the temple areas and the palace areas and all those sort of things. And some folks came by who really couldn't do much to Peter and said, are you with this guy? And they, he just kept denying him, right? And 
Remember that scene in which uh, the rooster crows and the Bible tells us that the eyes of Jesus and Peter meet. And I personally, and I say this every time I get here to this piece of scripture, I personally believe the way in which you think Jesus looked at Peter is a barometer of your spiritual life. See, when I read that, I go, man, oh, Jesus gave it to him in that look. You know, because my kids know. Like, I could be from here to there, and I could give them a look. They know. That wasn't appropriate. Shut that down. Don't do that anymore. (laughs) See, I don't think that's the way the Lord was looking at Peter. I think it was full of grace and compassion. Now, grace isn't wimpy, but I think God was saying, you're going to go through some hard things now, Peter. That's part of the training of grace, but you're going to be restored. So see, when you just read over that and that he was seen by Cephas, that's important Then by the twelve, the apostles, and after that he was seen by over 500 brothers at once. Do you know that up in Galilee? He was seen by over 500 brothers at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. Do you see how important that is for the people in Corinth? Not so much us now, but it is important for us now too, because if this was a hoax, they could have just walked up to Galilee and said, did you really see Jesus? You, You getting it? I don't know if you know this, but downtown, if you're going into a trial and you parade the first witness in front of the judge and and he says, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and none of the truth, how am I going to give, okay? Uh, Did you see Jesus up in Galilee? Yes, saw Jesus. Here's what he was wearing. Here's what he was doing. Yeah. Okay, parade the second uh, witness into there and do tell the truth, the whole truth, and none of the truth. Yeah, I saw Jesus. I saw him. What was he? He was doing this. Yep. Okay. Third witness up there. You know what would happen after about the second or third witness? You know what the judge would do? Okay, enough. We're not bringing out all 500. We got enough evidence. And see, that's the point. All of this is witnessed. These people could have just, you know this, right? People who were hoax conspiracy theorists. Maybe some here, but anyway. (laughs) All right, don't send emails, okay? (laughs) Not about the resurrection, by the way. I know you're not that. You know what they could have done? They could have just brought the body out, and this whole thing would have been shut down. You know what could have happened? to those 11 or so martyred apostles who didn't even, except one, show up at the cross. They were wimpy. I probably would have been wimpy too. They were too scared to go to the cross, but they saw the resurrected Jesus, so that impacted them to the point where they lived a martyred life. They, They died a martyr's death. You know what? If somebody had a Fowler's Club, a sledgehammer, it's going to hit me in the head. That's how one of them died. They were going to push me off the temple. And they said, you know what? If you're lying, you really need to tell us now or you're going to get hit in the head here. You know what I'd have said? You're right. I was lying if it was a hoax. But these people couldn't say that because they really, truly saw him. They really did. 
And they weren't, some of them, you know, weren't dead yet. They could go talk to them. And after that, he was seen by James, who's James, the half-brother of Christ. Why do I say half-brother? Because Jesus didn't have a biological dad, but he had a mom, and James was his half-brother. And James is interesting because we know from Acts 15 and elsewhere that James became the leader of the early church. You say, wow, big deal. No, it is a big deal. And the reason it's a big deal is because the scriptures tell us his brothers didn't believe in him prior to the resurrection. You can go to John 7, 3 through 5, yet if you turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 14, they're already following him. What was the difference? The resurrection. The resurrection. So it's important that James saw him too. Then last of all, he was seen by me, who's me, Paul, also as one born out of due time. Now, every, nobody, or people debate what due time means. Some people believe he's just saying he wasn't an apostle. He was born again after the apostleship, became an apostle. But, you know, he wasn't part of those original 12, and he was born out of due time. Other people have some other ideas about why his uh, birth was untimely, according to Paul. I'll let you be a Berean and search through that. Verse 9, for I'm the least of the apostles. He had a healthy balance. I want you to see this. He had a real healthy balance between should we denigrate ourselves all the time and say we're losers and sinners and awful, or should we always say we're child, children of the king and royalty? What should we say? Well, Paul here has a healthy balance. He knew where he came from. He was a sinner, and Paul says later he was the chief of sinners. In fact, he was a murderer. You say, well, I've never murdered anybody. Yeah, really? You've, I've seen you guys in traffic, and you've hated people, <laughs> right? We've hated people in our lives, and Jesus says that's murder. We all need Jesus. Well, whatever. Here's Paul, and he has this healthy balance. I am a sinner that was saved by grace, and I'm called to something new. I'm the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle. He recognized that. How could God pick me? Ever said that to yourself? I said that to myself. How could God pick me? Paul says, look at the bad things I've done. I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And see, that's a healthy balance. You don't focus all the time on just, you know, I'm a worm and I'm nobody and I'm a duh, duh. That's false humility. Come on, we're just trying to impress people by saying how humble we are. Isn't that funny? But then the other part is, you know, I'm this and I'm that, and I declare things, and yes, I get it. I, I, we want to stand in our position of who we are, no doubt about it. But here, Paul has a healthy respect that here's what he came from, and here who he, uh, or who he, here, here's who he is. And there's this healthy balance that he has so that it doesn't get tipped one way or the other. I hope you're getting that. And what's funny about it is it's all centered around grace, and you and I need to understand what grace is. It's God making all the provisions for us so that we could live with him forever in eternity, bodily. Not like Casper the ghost, bodily. We're going to live with our creator forever in a bodily form or in bodily form. And God made all the provision for that to happen. That's grace. So, you know what we think in the church is grace? 
Here's what we think, church, and I wanted to erase this. Somebody makes a mistake. Pastor comes to him and says, you know, you really shouldn't be looking at the porn on your phone. And the guy says, come on, man, give me some grace. Well, you don't understand what grace is because that's not grace. That's licentiousness, and the Bible says that's not what we're to practice. No, we're, we're to be people who pursue holiness, of course, and yet God continues to pursue us and is forgiving us and has forgiven us, yes, but we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everybody tracking? Grace isn't just forgiving you uh, because you, you're sorry about it or, you, you know, letting you off the hook. You know, real brothers don't let each other off the hook in a good way, in a good way. You know what I'm saying? We pray for one another. We check on one another. We encourage one another. We speak truth to one another. Grace just read Titus. Grace is a training grace into the image of Jesus Christ himself. It's not wimpy, just letting people off the hook. And so Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It wasn't in vain for me. Because Paul surrendered his life to Christ. He had this encounter, the most incredible statement ever when he's on the road to Damascus. And each one of you and everybody in the world is going to have to answer this question. Every single person will answer this question, the same question Paul was asked. But Paul, who do you say that I am? Every single person is going to have to come to that question and answer it one way. You say, well, what if they don't do it during the time that they're here on earth? Well, they'll do it at the great white throne judgment. So, grace, the grace of God, I am what I am. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I. He didn't even take credit for that. I, I, Paul could have said, I built the whole church system in ancient world. God used me to build the whole church system, and it was true. The whole spread of Christianity centered mostly on him, other people too, of course other people, but he was the main player or a main player. He labored more abundantly, yet it was the grace of God which was with him. Don't you just love the grace of God? Let's understand and know what grace is. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached or preach and so you believe. Now listen to this. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... Here comes a question that was in the letter. Are you getting it? The letter said, some of us think there's no resurrection of the dead, Paul. What do you say? And he says, well, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty or vain, and your faith is also empty. So don't just think it's on me now. You know, we would be the dumbest of dumb. The stupidest of stupid. Is that a word? I don't even know. We, we, it, this would just be, can you imagine living 50, 60, 70 years coming to church and none of it ever mattering at all? Not, none of it matter at all. None of it. See, that's what Paul says. If the resurrection didn't happen, this what we're doing right now, stupid. 
nothing. Don't do it. You see how important the resurrection is? Why? Why? If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witness of God because we have testified God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Now you're going, well, come on, what's this all about? Well, think about this. If he didn't raise up Christ, if the dead don't rise, Christ isn't risen, risen, all this. And if Christ isn't risen, your faith risen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Do you get that? <laughs> why? Tell me why. Here's why. God, God's penalty or justice was satisfied totally at the cross to tell us die. It is finished. But when Jesus died and then rose again to sit at the right hand of the Father, it's as if the Father said, well, here's the receipt saying it was paid in full. That's the evidence that God accepted the sacrifice. You get it? You know, on the Day of Atonement, <laughs> Leviticus 16, what a book. You know that day where the high priest would go in and, uh, you know, do all the things that he had to do, go back into the most holiest of rooms where the Shekinah glory resided. You know what the people were doing as he would go in there, right? Because remember, he had to wash. He had to do certain things. By the way, when he came out, he you know, uh, sacrificed one goat, and he let one goat go out in the wilderness. Remember that? Scapegoat. Remember all this? You know what the people were doing when he was inside there? Waiting with bated breath to see if he came out. Because if he came out, watch, the sacrifice took. But if he was struck dead in there, oh no, our sins for the next year haven't been paid for. Are you getting it? Who's our great high priest? Jesus Christ. What did he do? He went in and then he was raised to new life. He took some time to show real people that he really did die and rise again. And then he ascended to the Father. And it was like the people, just like in the Day of Atonement, yes, the sacrifice took. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, so that's what happened. And that's why that, this all makes sense. In fact, the dead don't rise. For the dead don't rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. The sin uh, it wasn't effective. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You understand, if Jesus didn't rise again, when we stand over the casket and we say, you know, we have real hope. Well, if Christ didn't rise, we couldn't say that. Well, we could say it, but it wouldn't be true. Because the Bible teaches, and you're going to see it here, that this is not the end. Look in verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, 
We are of all men the most pitiable. If in this life only, if there's no resurrection of the dead, what are we doing? Do you, you know this in John 5? You need to know this verse. In John 5, it talks about two resurrections, you know that? I'm praying that everybody in here is at the first resurrection. That's resurrection unto life. I'm praying nobody in here is at the second resurrection. That's the resurrection unto death. You know when we say we have eternal life? Well, we do, but it could be spent in two different places. You're going to have eternal life. It's just where are you going to spend it? There's a first judgment unto life. There's a second judgment unto death. Now watch this. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now to you, I doesn't mean much maybe. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But to a Jewish person and to the people who... Uh, Learned under Paul, well, first fruits would evoke something, and that would be a feast. It's found in Leviticus 23. You could turn there. I'm not going to right now, and it's in verses 9 through 14. It's one of the first couple or three feasts on the Jewish calendar, the first being Passover, the second being the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You guys stay with me here because this has got, got an amazing point. And the feast, or excuse me, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are two separate feasts, but they happen back to back. Passover's one day, Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days, so it's an eight-day feast, but it's two feasts, you getting it? And so sometimes in the Bible they say Passover, or sometimes they just say Feast of Unleavened Bread, but those two feasts happen back to back. And then That same week on the, listen, I want you to write this down or remember it in your head. On the morning after the Sabbath, after the Passover, this is important. Do you know that same week, on the morning after the Sabbath, you say, wait a minute, Sabbath? Okay, let's think about that. To the Jewish person, Saturday is the Sabbath. <laughs> Not Sunday, folks. Saturday is the Sabbath. Sunday is the first day of the week. And what happens on, in this feast in the book of Leviticus on the morning after the Sabbath, after the Passover, I'm saying it on purpose over and over again, they would take barley, not blood, not an animal. They would take barley that was planted and harvested. It, and they were planted in the fall and harvested in the spring. And they'd wave it before the Lord. And what was to follow the stuff that they waved before the Lord, the more of the harvest, they were saying, all of that's yours too. We know it. You're giving it to us, but it's yours. We know it. Now, wait a minute, folks. When did Jesus die? At the Passover time. When was the morning after the Sabbath? It was the day Jesus rose out of the grave. The day of first fruits. 
So what he's saying here, look, if you go back, but now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. See, you, you should take that verse and get it and write it on the little index card and just plant it right there on the refrigerator. Because what this is telling you is, if he went first, and he did, those who are all, all those who are in Christ are coming too. I'm going to have to say that again because I don't think you got it. And not only are you coming to be with him, you're going to come, we're going to see here in a minute, in bodily resurrected form. If Christ is risen from the dead, he's become the first fruits. That evokes the feast, folks, from Leviticus 23. Died on the Passover, rose on the day of first fruits. Of course he did because he was the first fruits or is the first fruits. He's the first one. Resurrection. But you're going to be resurrected. Not reconstructed. Watch this. For as, at, as in Adam all die. Well, when we're born, we have an Adam nature. You can read Romans and you can see that. Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. Every person in the world are in two camps. Only two camps. That's it. Everybody you see walking at work, walking down the halls at school, walking out on the street, playing soccer, they're in two camps. They're either in Adam or they're in Christ. It's it. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, we're transferred from the kingdom of earthly carnality. We're transferred to the spiritual kingdom of God into the kingdom of the son of his love, the Bible tells us. We're into a different, we're in Christ now. He's in us and we're in him. Our Adamic nature, our sin nature is put, is, is, we're baptized into Christ. The sin nature's done away with and we're raised to new life. That's what this is talking about. But each one in his own order. Listen to this. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. There's an order to this. Christ, the first fruits, he already did it. Afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. Now I believe and we believe at the twinkling of an eye. Everybody know that scripture in Thessalonians? You're going to be changed. We believe it's when the rapture happens. But whatever, there might be some who have differing uh, eschatological bents. When Christ comes, you're going to receive a glorified, resurrected body. And the reason is simple. You can't live in this thing up there or in heaven. I don't know if it's... But anyway, you can't live, live in this thing there. With Christ, you can't because it's not suited for heaven. Watch. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father because currently, remember, even though God's sovereign, the enemy has the keys, title deed to the earth, and we're, Jesus is going to end all of that when he puts an end to all rule and all authority, and all power, for he must reign, we believe that's the a thousand year reign, literal, under, uh, or he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. Do you know what happens at the end of the millennial reign, according to the book of Revelation? This is always just so fascinating. You get so many questions when you teach Revelation about this idea. At the end of the 1,000 year reign, God's going to let Satan loose for a time. What? 
We've enjoyed peace and prosperity a thousand years, and you're going to let, yeah, he's going to let Satan loose. He's going to reign, and then what he's going to do, watch this, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Into the lake of fire is going to be the enemy, and death will be destroyed, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evidence that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. Don't freak out about that. The Son willingly submits to the Father. And that's what's going on. That's God's future plan. Well, watch this. What if you deny the resurrection? Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the uh, dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Um, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Uh, I affirm by the boasting in which uh, I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus... What advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You know what's happening right here? Uh, What's happening right here is if the resurrection didn't happen, (laughs) Paul's saying, look at this. Why would I go through everything I'm going through? <laughs> I've been, I mean, the one that gets me, I know this one probably the least on yours, but this one's the tough one for me, getting bit by that viper, man. I just would not like that at all. Giving up everything, money, power, prestige. He gave it all up to go and share the gospel all around the ancient world. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was put in prison. He was, you know, despised by people, even some of his own brothers. He gave it all up. And Paul says, why in the world would I ever do any of this if Christ didn't rise again? Your life wouldn't matter or our lives wouldn't matter. The suffering, there's no, there would be no redemption in suffering. It would all be so confusing. But if Christ rose, then here's what's on my agenda. Watch this. I know it's just for a time, but I'm going to glory and being with the Lord because of the first fruits. He's the first. I'm coming behind. Everybody get it? It's hope. This whole thing's about hope. What's this thing about baptizing the dead? Well, apparently... They did it back then by proxy. Say, you know, my dad died or something, and then I went, oh, geez, he never got baptized. So they'd go and stand in his place and get baptized. Now you go, well, that's weird. Well, there's some groups that teach that right now, folks, and they're out in Utah, and that's normal course of procedure. But it certainly can't meet that, mean that we should, uh, you know, engage in that sort of thing. The Bible tells us it's appointed once to die and then the judgment So this phrase must mean something else. Here's what Warren Wearsby says about it. I think it's a pretty good description. The church uh, uh, has never accepted the practice of baptizing by proxy. To begin with, salvation is a personal matter that each must decide for himself, right? We know that. And second, nobody needs to be baptized to be saved. That's Warren Wearsby saying that. And I think he's probably right, but, or right, but... If you have questions about, come up here. The phrase, prob- the phrase baptizing the dead means baptized 
to take the place that, uh, of those who have died. In other words, if there's no resurrection, why bother to witness and win others to Christ? Why reach sinners who are then baptized and take the place of those who have died? If the Christian life is only a dead-end street, get off of it. Each responsible person on earth will share in either this resurrection of life or this resurrection of death. Now, don't check out because you're going to find people that believe this stuff. Now, watch. I'm racing to get to here, and I promise I'm going to close. I'm not even going to finish chapter 15. And that's good for me because I've already studied it. All right, good. But someone will say, well, how are the dead raised up? Come on, man. Seriously, how are the dead going to be raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one. Isn't that funny that Paul says that? Me and my sarcastic self, that really resonates with me. But he just says, that's foolish. If Christ really died, that sort of thinking is for fools. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Do you remember this? Jesus himself said unless a seed goes into the ground and dies. Remember that scripture? Jesus talked about this. Paul is telling you, yeah, Jesus was right on. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And and that's in John 12, by the way, where Jesus says that. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be. But mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, fish, birds. Now, what? what, Look, the perfect example, and this is not by accident. Who here loves to garden? I'll put my hand down. I do know this, though. If you get a daffodil or a tulip bulb, Man, those things are ugly. You're like looking at the thing and going, really? We're going to plant this thing? That's ugly. Who would want that? And then, I mean, I know they can study the science, but at the core of this, they don't know why. You put that thing down in the ground, it dies, so to speak. You put it in the ground, you water it, and you get some sun. And then all of a sudden, out of the ground comes life. And not only life, beautiful life, life that you love to bring in here at Easter time, Resurrection Day time, you love it, you want the lilies here. Those came from an ugly, gross-looking bulb. (laughs) Now, none of you are ugly or (laughs) gross-looking. But here's the point. You see... That's what our resurrected life is going to be like, our resurrected, glorious body. There's going to be some continuity because it is your life that's planted in the ground. If you happen to die before the Lord comes back, you're going to be planted in the ground, so to speak. But you're going to have a new body, and it's going to be different, and it's sort of mysterious. There's some continuity. It's you, but it's new. Just like the lily. You get it? And for the believer, I just want you to think about this for a minute. And this is sort of hard to say because I know some of us have lost people. Actually, we didn't lose them. We know where they are. But I know we've had people die. But you know what? Listen, for those who die before Jesus comes back, 
this thing's got to go away. And it's got to be the new heavenly body. You're not suited for heaven yet. Are you all tracking there? So here's what I'll do. I'll close here and uh, we'll finish out chapter 15. And I think hopefully you're starting to see why this is one of the four pillars to me. This chapter just reeks. Can you say that about the Bible? With hope. It's just pouring out of the page. It's just pouring out of the Lord's heart is that we look around and see, you know, tables and chairs and this and that and this, and this isn't all there is. We're going to be with the Lord forever and ever in a glorified, resurrected, daffodil lily body. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for these glorious truths. I thank you because, Lord, you give us hope through these things, these scriptures. Wow, what a blessing. Help us to take these things in and to move and grow in them and to walk out here and tell people about the gospel so that many would come to know you in a real and saving way. In Jesus' name, amen.